From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 22. You bet your ass. So, hello everyone. My name is Stephen Conway, and welcome to The Spiel. I'm David Coulson. Glad to have you guys back. We have a, a good episode on tap, I think, today. We we span the the historical range here, I think, today. Kind of crazy. <laughs> the list is going to be uh, go all the way from ancient Egypt with uh, Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. All the way to a, a little gambling with wits and wagers. <laughs> it should be, should be an interesting combo. I'm looking forward to it. I think. Uh, this episode might be a little on the shorter side this week because uh, I am leaving tomorrow for Miami, Florida for the Super Bowl. (laughs) Cool. beloved Indianapolis Colts are in the Super Bowl and we are super fortunate to to land some tickets to the game. So needless to say, I'm just a little bit pumped for uh, this weekend. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just be sitting at home watching it on my TV. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Uh, you'll be there in spirit with us, I know. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, enough talking about games with uh, giant men. Time for games for people our size. Little beeples. <laughs> Game news and notes. A bit of exciting news in the game world this week. Days of Wonder has finally announced their newest game. Anytime they announce a game, everybody's like, ooh, what is it, what is it? (laughs) So the newest game is Colosseum. It's designed by Wolfgang Kramer and Marcus Lubke. It's for three to five players, ages 10 and up. List for 50 bucks. As usual, you're going to find it online for between 30 and 40 bucks. This should be out sometime in April, which is cool. Oh, that's soon. I I Well, they say April, you know, so technically that may mean... Yeah. August. Who, kn- who knows? <laughs> They're pretty good about following their release I kind of hope so. they'd wait for their next big release until Gen Con, but... Yeah. <laughs> who knows? I'm looking forward to it no matter when it comes out. Definitely. So in Colosseum, each player is a Roman impresario, producing great spectacles in his or her arena in the hopes of attracting the most spectators. Players earn wealth and glory for each event run, using it to create ever more ambitious events. You're going to need to improve your arena... Find the best performers, of course, lure the emperor and his nobles, and if you manage your assets well, you might just be granted the title of Grand Empresario. Has a really good sound to it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a sucker for that ancient Roman stuff. Yeah. Alone, just thematically sounds really interesting. So if, but if it, yeah, if the theme doesn't excite you alone, just the fact that Days of Wonder is doing it because you know the goober is going to be over the top. This thing supposedly is each player is going to get their own arena. Mm-hmm. And each player is going to have expansions, expansions that you can build onto that arena. Not to mention a myriad of all these other pieces. I think there's actually some hand-painted figures. Oh, that's cool. Which is going to be sweet. There were definitely uh, the list of the goober that was coming with the game was, was long and varied and, and yeah. sounded really interesting, I thought. Yeah. Um, and there really hasn't been, if you think about it. I mean, what, Rainer Knizia has that one gladiator clash of the Clash gladiator. of the gladiators, exactly. But the, to me, there hasn't been that one you know, defining 
gladiatorial kind of game right. out there. I mean, there's Circus Maximus that's a great right. older one, and there's some like that. But to me, there's not just one that you think of that, oh, that's the game, and maybe this is the game that's right. going to kind exactly. of... exactly. And if all of that didn't excite you enough, I read this little interview with Wolf, Wolfgang Kramer. Yes. Where somebody asked him, you know, out of all the games you've designed, what do you think Coliseum is most like? And his quote was, although it's simpler and more with more elements of luck and an additional element of negotiation, he thinks Colosseum is most similar to Princes of Florence. Wow. Can't uh, can't go wrong with that, because that is an excellent, yeah, excellent that, game. Yeah, that just, this has me all excited, so <laughs> look forward for this puppy. Hopefully in April, maybe a little bit later. Should be cool. Yeah, we'll have links. There's links to the, the game site now on Great. Dave's of Wonder site. We'll include those in the, the show awesome. notes, so you can go and delve into it more <laughs> at your leisure. <laughs> So my news and notes this week is going to be kind of rapid fire web links. I've got I got some really good suggestions from um, listeners yeah. writing in. It was just all over the map, yeah, and I didn't want to cool. just pick one. So I'm you're going to have to go to the website to to find these links and see more about them. But I'm just going to kind of tease you with uh, these different stories that I think are probably worth your attention for <laughs> totally different reasons. <laughs> uh, the first one is a Sabudio Table Soccer USB drive. So you know the little USB <laughs> drives that you can use to save you know, your data and transport it easily and right. just put it in your pocket and put it on your keychain or whatever. So this was reported on Tech Digest and Engadget. How about a little mini hard drive that doubles as a Sabudio Table Soccer player? <laughs> That is it's awesome. created by an Italian designer <laughs> named Marco Leone, but the little stand-up part is the the guy, and that's the USB drive, and then it has a base that's just the round base in. that you pop in, and then you can flick it just like you would a Sabudio <laughs> table soccer guy. So depending on what, what you have loaded on the drive might depend on how good the player oh, is. Hey, yeah, you know? there you go. <laughs> but you should. it has to be seen to be believed. It is wow. really funny. Thanks uh, to Zach in Texas for for pointing out that link. I thought that was really awesome, and the, the pictures are great. Of course, go to the website. You'll see the links uh, to, to check, click through and, and see them. Um, next, um, there's this auction that's happening in Las Vegas in April. It's called the Great Gambling Auction, the Sydney H. Radner Collection. The auction's going to happen in mid-April um, of this year at the Liberace Museum in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, which cool. alo- that alone is worth the trip because you've, you've <laughs> never been to the Liberace Museum. It is it is something to see. Just don't let your wife forget her lipstick. <laughs> D- Dave never will, mind. Dave will tell that story. <laughs> Sometime later. Sometime later. <laughs> but... So apparently, um, Sidney H. Radner was um, he was all, he was an avid collector of magic uh, paraphernalia as well as gambling and gaming supplies. There isn't a lot of information about him as a person or um, his collection in specific in terms of text, but the link that I have has photos of the lots that are going up for sale, and it is extremely interesting. There are just tons of old like nineteenth. Uh, century all the way through the present gambling paraphernalia and casino type gambling things. There are dice, so of course Dave's involved. He also has um, a collection of like gambling cheater type things like card feeders that you'd wear on your arm that would flip the cards. Did we mention that there's dice? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, let's see. Yeah, there might be a few dice (laughs) involved, but um, if only for the pictures, go and look at this this link. Um, I'm sure there'll be more information as it gets closer to the time and, and I would... If anybody knows more about Sidney H. Radner, I would love to to find out about his collection because it's really, really interesting, I think. 
Third on the the list of rapid fire games is um, the oldest recorded game board so far in history was found uh-huh. in Iran. Um, it's the oldest backgammon uh, game board found in the world, along with sixty pieces. It was unearthed beneath the rubble of the legendary burnt city in Sistan Baluchistan province in southeastern Iran. Iranian archaeologists working on the relics of the 5,000-year-old civilization argue that this backgammon set is much older than the ones that were found in Mesopotamia and that their evidence is strong enough to claim that the board game was first played in the burnt city and then transferred to these other civilizations. Ah. So the backgammon is actually older than we think it is. Unfortunately, I can't remember who sent me this web link, but (laughs) whoever you are out there, please... Claim the credit. I'd, I'd be more than happy to to give you credit where credit is due. But I do had I had that bookmarked, and I just thought that was cool. It's the discovery isn't like the most recent thing in the world. Right. I think it happened in two thousand four. Okay, but I've got a link to this Iranian news site that has this article on the on this game, and I I just thought it was really Did interesting. Did they have any pictures? Of yeah, it had, well, it had pictures of the dice. Oh, okay. Um, from what did, from the set. Um, I thought back then it was pretty much just. I thought so too. Like shells or the, something with. The only picture they had was a picture of the dice, so I don't huh, know I'll, exactly. I'll have to look that up and look at it, too. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, lastly, um, we had a, a guy named Steve Esling wrote in to tell us about this really awesome game engine called Vassal. Um, the Vassal, um, it's a place that you're going to go on the web and download this little applet for your computer. It's a game engine for building and playing online adaptations of board games and card games. It allows users to play in real time over a live internet connection in addition to playing by email. It runs on all platforms. It's free for personal use, and it includes just an, a bazillion different kinds of games, including like the Cosmos two-player classics like Hera and Zeus, Robo Rally, Dreamblade, Battle Lore, DBA, and then even heavies like Panzer Blitz wow. and Advanced Squad Leader. So it's basically open source. So anybody who wants to create a, bo- a version of a board game that will play through this vassal. You just create it and post it there. You can log in, you download this little module, and then you could play with anybody on the world. Wow. It's it's just extremely cool. I encourage you to, to check it out. It looks neat. So there's there's a, the rapid fire, a couple <laughs> web links, I think, that'll, that'll keep you... <laughs> keep you uh, wasting some time at work, hopefully, for a a few hours. The List Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, Life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So welcome to the list. This is where we're going to review a couple games that we finally got to knock off of our list. So the first game off the list tonight... Wits and Wagers. We've talked about this game in a couple past episodes. I think it was on our holiday list, right? Yeah. One yeah, of the was. games on our holiday list. Definitely. Steve and I finally got to sit down with a handful of friends and really play this, and it's a lot of fun. So Wits and Wagers was published by North Star Games, designed by Dominic Crapuchet. It's for 3 to 21 players, ages 10 and up. Obviously, the 21 players is for teams. So you can play this as individuals, or you can divide up into teams. List for about 30 bucks. You can find online for 22 to $25. Wits and Wagers is a trivia game 
where you don't need to know the exact answer to win. Thank you. (laughs) Every player answers every question. Then all the players bet on which guesses they think is which guess they think is closest to being correct. Players can use their knowledge of trivia, the interest of their friends, or the odds to help them decide where to bet. The closest answer without going over pays out according to the odds that are printed out on the board. The player with the most chips at the end of the game wins. Pretty straightforward, great little game. Wits and Wagers comes with this really cool felt rubber pad that you use as a board. That's going to be where you place your answers. It's going to be where you place your bets. It's really cool. It's divided into um, eight betting slots. The payout um, for these slots range anywhere from one to one to five to one, depending upon where it is on on the layout. At the start of the game, each player gets a little laminated answer card and a dry erase pen. This is really cool because every round all you have to do is scribble down your answer. Once the round's over, whap, one wipe with a napkin or something, you're ready to go. You also get two wooden betting cubes. These are used to place on your bets so you can kind of keep track of which are your bets whose versus... Chips or whose. Exactly. Um, and then last but not least, you get $80 worth of chips. Which, most of the time, I didn't have any when I was left. But. <laughs> so each, the cool thing, each game of Wits and Wagers only lasts for seven questions. So once you start playing this, you're most likely going to play two, three, four games of it in a night because it goes by really fast. Yeah, way faster than you'd expect. Either. Right. Um, the answer to every question is going to be in the form of a number. So an example of a question might be, how many gamers attended Gen Con in 2006? Once the question is read, you'll have 30 seconds to write down your answer. Everybody reveals their answers at the same time. The answers are then organized from smallest to largest, and then they're placed in the pl- in the payout slots on the board. Now you have 30 more seconds. This time you have 30 seconds to bet between 0 and $10, distributed between one or two of the payout slots. At the end of that 30 seconds, the answer is read out loud. The closest answer without going over pays out. As a bonus, the person who wrote that answer that was the closest is going to get a $10 bonus. That's the game. It is so simple. You can teach anybody how to play this in in 30 seconds. The only difference, the seventh round of the game, rather than limiting you to the amount that you can bet, is actually kind of like an all-in. You can take all your money and just shove it to the table in hopes of you know, getting tons of cash back. Mm-hmm. It's a great little game. Yeah, I... I... I was really surprised. I mean, I didn't go into it thinking that I was going to be disappointed, but right. I think I enjoyed it more than I expected because it did things that I wasn't expecting it to <laughs> to do in terms of the way the game played out, if that I, makes I know exact, yep. sense. Uh, the thing that I thought that it did the best was that it doesn't, like you were saying at the beginning in your intro, you don't have to know the correct answer. And in some cases, the answer that you end up wanting to write down, even if you kind of may, you're in the ballpark of knowing the answer, you may want to go on the low side because it. Uh, if you're over, you get oh, nothing. You can't possibly win. So there's an interesting sort of strategy element to how you're betting because, of course, you don't know what everybody else is writing down on their little number pad as well, and it's funny how often you'll be on the same wavelength right. as somebody else, even when you're picking. You know, the number just, can be all over the place, and two people pick. You know, thirty-seven thousand six hundred and twenty-three. Right. You know, it, it happens more often than you would you would expect. Um, I like the fact that to me, if you were like a smarmy Hollywood agent <laughs> trying to pitch this game to like a a studio, the movie pitch for this game would be. Uh, 
Family Feud meets The Price is Right. Exactly. Yep. Because exactly. it takes, to me, uh, maybe I'm off, but to me it takes t- two elements. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of either of those things, uh-huh. but it takes the best part, the coolest mechanic in both of those games and combines them in a way that it's it. the best thing you can say about it is you look at that and you're like, haven't I played this game before? Because it seems like it's been around forever, but yet they found a way to take these mechanics and combine them in a way that makes the game seem like it's been around for right. a lot longer than it really has. You know, it's kind of, a, exactly. I guess, a new classic. Not to over-abuse that term, but to, right. to me, I think this would, uh, you know, w- is approaching fitting that category. It has to see if, we have to see if it stands the test of time yet, but... I'm sure, I'm sure it will. I think one of the coolest things that I liked about it is the ability for you to gauge your the knowledge that your friends have. Mm. So, you know, in a game with Steven, you know, anything that's, you know, literature-based or something like that, you you might want to bet where he's guessing because he's got, you know, a breadth of knowledge in that area. So it allows you not only just to guess at the answers, but to, to wage what other knowledge everybody has at the table and make educated decisions on where to put your money. That's an excellent point because the questions are all over the map. They're not very subject-specific, so they can really cover a wide gamut of possibilities. And, you know, you may not know, and you're just stabbing at the dark, and that's fine, but you happen to know, oh, hey, that person knows a lot about that, and it puts you on kind of a level playing field. Um, I do like the fact that that all-in bet at the end is a great way to deal with the fact that if someone is just absolutely trouncing everyone in the right. first six rounds, as long as you're within, you know, what, double, double plus one, whatever right. they have, you could still right. end up squeaking out a victory. And I think that's even how the last, because we played three or four games of it, I had built up a pretty big lead exactly, and uh, ended up in. betting really poorly <laughs> on the last round. And Dave went all in on the five to one. Five to one. And, and ended up being right. And, and that ended up swinging the victory in his favor. So I, I like that fact that um, you can still, you're not out of it in that right. final you're, round. Exactly. You're never out of it. And it looks like you could also open this up if you wanted to. You could almost make every round, like, bet whatever you want to bet. You know, I mean, if you if you wanted yeah. to change up, you know, if if people were a little more comfortable with the knowledge and did my, I think you could easily lift that ten dollar minimum and see what happens. We haven't play tested it by any means. Yeah, but I, I guess the only problem I could see with that would be is if you went all in early and were wrong. Oh well, yeah, then you're, you're just stupid. Screw, and, you're screwed, and <laughs> right. you know, I mean, you're gonna you could end up you know way ahead of everybody else, but you could also end up out of the game. Right. Which is kind of that would be a bummer. a bummer. In this case, out of the game is about ten minutes away. That's but. true. Or I mean, I guess if you were really gambling with this game, right. you I mean, I think it would be set up fine if you were actually gambling because you could just right. say, Well, buy in again. Exactly. You know, okay, everybody throws in ten bucks or a dollar, you know, you could play whatever right. <laughs> scale gambling you want to play. But I mean if you want to go all in, fine. You lose that dollar, you just put another dollar in and you get another set of chips and, and you just made the kitty right. that much sweeter for the person who's gonna I, th- I think they said that it. there's enough cards in the game for maybe like seven hundred games or something. So there's a healthy amount, but I can see when you compare it to other trivia type of games that it has a little fewer cards than you would think. Mm-hmm. So if you're somebody who really loves it and plays it over and over and over, you know, I think you may find yourself running out of some cards, but surely I would love to see them put out some supplemental cards for this. Yeah. Or surely there's books or other places where you could just gather a truckload of number based trivia. I know that they were kind of the publisher they were having issues with, you know, staying afloat for a while. Right. So I would hope maybe 
if you listen to this and we've encouraged you to go out there if, if they you know they do well enough with the game right. it would be awesome to see them uh, publish you know once a year or something a new deck of cards that you could I, add I think to they'll the game, do well because this game knows? Is, is got great reviews everywhere you look i know they were somehow north star was somehow associated with eagle mm-hmm. so i'm not sure how that whole thing happened that may explain some of the trouble but, that they were having that's for right. sure but um I would definitely encourage, especially because it's a party game that doesn't fit into those niches of, you know, I mean, I, I love Scattergories too, but I can only play it so many times right. before I just want to go off and <laughs> hork. And, you know, there's definitely a place for some really good new party games that, exactly. that sort of scratch a different sort of itch than the ones that everybody's familiar with. And I, I totally think this belongs this in that category. Yeah, definitely. So once again, first game off the list. Wits and Wagers, check it out. Very cool. So next on the list we have, uh, we're going to go back in history, <laughs> several Way thousand <laughs> years. Um, and it, it, I guess it's kind of Days of Wonder Day here on yeah. this field. We, we did Coliseum here, and the next game on the list is Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. Um, it was published in 2006. Bruno Cathala um, and Ludovic Maublanc are the designers. Uh, Days of Wonder, again, is the publisher. It's for three to five players. It takes about an hour to play the game. And uh, I think it retails for around 50 but you can find it online for around 35 which for the amount of goober that you yeah, get at this a, game is a really good $35 deal. $35 well spent. It's a very good deal. So um, here's a little flavor text and just kind of a little background, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of the, the rules and then, cool. and then discuss. Um, the pyramids are crumbling, the temples are in ruin, and even the nose of the Great Sphinx looks like it might fall off any day now. Cleopatra is one unhappy queen. She has called on the members of the Society of Architects to build her a magnificent new palace in Alexandria, with a pharaoh's ransom going to the design that pleases her most. Cleopatra and the Society of Architects is a fun and engaging family game that includes a three-dimensional palace that players compete to build. Players strive to become the wealthiest of Cleopatra's architects by constructing the most magnificent and valuable parts of her palace. Players will be tempted to deal with shady characters and trade materials of dubious origins in order to help them build faster. While these corrupt practices might allow an architect to stay a step ahead of the rest, they come with a high-priced, cursed corruption amulets honoring Sobek, the crocodile god. When Cleopatra finally strolls into her new palace at the end of the game, the most corrupt architect, the one with the most amulets, will be seized and offered as a sacrifice to the sacred crocodile gods. Uh, Only then will the wealthiest architect among all those still alive will be selected and declared the winner of the game. So that gives you just a little sense of the what you're going to be the the narrative kind of around this game, which I think is extremely well thought out and and interesting. It is very. so a little bit about what you get with this game before we get into this. Uh, this definitely belongs on truckloads of, of goober at Absolutely. some point <laughs> down the road. Um, so you get an entire three-dimensional palace that you're going to build around the box, the game box. Really interesting. I think Niagara is right. one of the few other games I can think of where you use the box of the game as actually an element exactly. of the game um, in, in recent memory. Uh, so you're going to get... Nine column walls, two door frames, two obelisks, six sphinxes. That's kind of hard to say. Six sphinxes. <laughs> six sphinxes. <laughs> and a bar tree, a pear tree. <laughs> uh, one throne, 
uh, one pedestal and ten statues of Anubis. You're also there's money, uh, the corruption amulets. Uh, there are little pyramids uh, uh, that you're going to set in front of you that are kind of like little piggy banks exactly. that you're going to load up with your corruption corruption amulets. Uh, resource cards, character cards, a little Cleopatra figure, and five dice with onks on them uh, that are the dice of the great uh, priest. That is just a amazing amount of stuff, and they're all nicely sculpted um, little pieces, and so. You 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 yeah you use the box as the base for the for the palace palace right. and you're going to build these things around and on the box to form the palace so by the end of the game you're going to have built this really cool sort of model of this Egyptian uh, temple which is really That's really awesome. cool <laughs> um, so. Um, let's just get right into the, the nitty-gritty of the game. Um, you're going to set up the game board, sort of as I described. There are parts that you're going to set out on top of the box and around the box. You're going to set the pieces off to the side because that's the, the basis, basic process of the game is going to be putting these pieces on or around the box to form the, the palace. Um, you're each going to get a little summary sheet, which kind of explains the different resource cards and what each of the pieces cost to build. Um, you're going to get two statues of Anubis, a Nile merchant uh, token, which is like a wild card, which can represent any of the different um, resources that you want to Very build, helpful. and five talents, which is the money in the game. Um, the absolute coolest at mechanic in this game, I think, is the market that you start out with. Um, those are the resource yeah. cards. So... Unlike most games where you just shuffle the market cards and you're going to flip cards out, in this game, you're going to take half the market cards, flip them upside down so that the the card face is up, and the other half with the card face down, and you're going to shuffle them together. <laughs> so you end up with this deck with some cards face up, some cards face down, and this is intended. This right. is not That's... like... I'm not screwing up the rules here. This is what you're supposed to do. I remember when Jason... Um, did that. I'm like, Jason, what are you doing? Yeah. It's like, no, that's what you're supposed to do, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to end up with this deck of cards that you know are flip-flopped either other way you know, and randomized, and you're going to form the market stalls by playing cards out in columns that are going to form the market. Some of these cards, of course, are going to be face-up, and some of them are going to be face-down. Um, and they're going to have the different resources and character cards that you're going to end up uh, pulling out of the market on the in your choice of what you're going to do on your turn. Um, so, obviously, if you pull some of the ones that are face-up, people are going to be able to tell what you're collecting and might be able to tell what you're building towards. Or if they're face-down, you can kind of keep it secret as far as what you might be trying to build, which just exactly. adds a whole interesting... But at the same, point, at the same time, you don't know what you're getting and... Right, yeah. So it's a, it's a there's a very risk. good balance. <laughs> so on your game round, the, the actual mechanic of playing the game, it couldn't be more simple. You basically have one choice. Are you going to reload your resource cards by taking stuff from the market, or are you going to build? That's basically the only choice that that defines the rest of what you're going to do on your turn. So if you visit the market, since we've been talking about the market, um, you're going to choose one of those columns. And you're going to take all the cards in those columns, and they're going to become part of your hand. You're then going to reload um, one card each to, to the other column. So the column that you don't pick, columns that you don't pick from Start are going to get bigger, and the other one is obviously just going to have one card in it um, for the next person to draw from. So each turn, you're going to have three columns to draw from, and it's going to be a mixture of probably face-up and face-down cards when you draw. Um, 
the only rule with the resource cards in your hand is if you're ever over 10, you, you that hand limit is 10 sort of. Right. <laughs> uh, you can have more than 10, but there's a price to be paid if you have more than 10. So if you ever have more than 10 cards in your hand at the end of your turn, you can choose to discard cards of your choice to get down to 10 and take one corruption token or you can keep all the cards over 10 and pay a, uh, take a corruption token at the cost of one, one. token per oh. card over 10. So there's a pretty high price to pay. Um, we should, I guess, at this point, get into the corruption right. a little bit here. So like I said, you're going to have this little pyramid piggy bank, <laughs> for lack of that's a better a term, way to it. Um, that has a little slot in it. That That's going to be where your corruption tokens are going to go um, in the game. And the catch is that once your corruption tokens go in there, unless there's an auction, which could or could not happen at certain points in the game, you don't know how many... You don't get to look and peek under there to see how many corruption tokens you have. So you have to kind of keep a running tally. If you're familiar with uh, El Grande, it's kind of similar to the Castillo, Castillo in exactly. El Grande, where you're putting things in there and you kind of have to keep a mental tab. Only each person has their own little private stash of right. corruption. Um, with the caveat being that if you end up with the most corruption at the end, you can't possibly win. The object is to have the most money. It doesn't matter if you have five times the amount of money. If you have five times <laughs> the amount of corruption, you're fed to the crocodiles and the person who has the second most money is going to win. So you have to, there's a really cool management aspect to you have to take some corruption but how much is too much so the first the first tough decision might come when you get a fistful of cards do you want to take that extra corruption to keep those resource cards or do you want to um get rid of it so you don't you know don't get the extra corruption um so there's there's kind of choice one you pull cards into your hand because what you what getting the cards in your hand allows you to do is the other choice, which is build parts of the palace. You've got all these three-dimensional columns and obelisks and sphinxes that you can put on the board, and your little activity board that's in front of you lists the prices of the different um, building, the different things. So there's, um, let's see, the different um, resource cards are artisans, wood, stone, marble and lapis lazuli Um, and the cool thing with the resource cards is that there are single resource cards that are corruption free but there are also (laughs) double resource cards that all have a price in corruption that if you use those in building again you're going to have to take corruption tokens and add them to your little pyramid um, keeping in mind that if you have the most you're going to lose so um you're going to look at your sheet if you want to build and decide based on the resources that you have in your hand which piece of the pyramid you or piece of the palace you want to build. Um, if, if you can build more than one, you can build as many as you have pieces to build. In fact, you're going to get bonuses because the what you're going to get for building the palace, of course, is money. And the name of the game at the end of the day is you want to have the most money. Uh, of all. So if you can build several in one turn, you're actually going to get an extra bonus for that. Um, certain types of pieces of the palace, only each each type of piece of the palace has a set number. So there are two obelisks, there are six sphinxes, there are nine wall sections, right. and so on. Whenever all of the pieces of a particular type of the palace have been formed, then Cleopatra is going to take a step closer to the actual entrance of the palace. When she gets to the entrance of the palace, the game ends. Um, 
So you have to keep that in mind in terms of how you're building because the end of the game can be triggered uh, kind of unexpectedly. If somebody's been sandbagging with a lot of cards in their hand, they might flop down and say, oh, well, I'm building four Sphinxes this turn and close off all the Sphinxes. And there are different prices for uh, the different elements that you're building too. So obviously you might want to go for the high dollar ones or you might try to build a lot of the ones that are smaller to to make up the difference. Um, So that's your basic choice in terms of of building. There are, of course, character cards that are sort of rules breakers that will allow you to do um, different things on your turn, and those can be played at any point. Those are mixed in with the resource cards. They all have a corruption price to be paid, and they'll allow you to do a variety of, of different things. They might allow you to steal resources from other people or may, or force them to give you money. Um, oh, I, I'm blanking on all of them, but well, yeah, there's, there's a, there are, I think, eight different forms of the the character cards and they all have that great agonizing. Wow. They make me do something really cool. They let me do something really cool, but they also make Make me me. draw corruption tiles. So that's a really interesting little extra mechanic. Um, I think the only other mechanical thing that I need to cover are the dice. Whenever you build a piece of the palace, um, you're going to roll these set of five, the dice of the great priest and they're blank on five sides. And then they have an onk on the other side. You roll them, and any onks that come up are put in the the, the uh, temple. When all five dice, uh, eventually throughout the game, you're going to get more and more of these dice coming up with the onks, and they're going to be put in there. Whenever all the dice show up with the onks, that's going to trigger an auction. Um, and this auction is uh, <laughs> it has a great reward if you're the winner and a great <laughs> penalty if you're the loser. The game sort of is suspended for the moment. You have these, this auction. Everyone bids to try to be the top winner of the auction. The person who's the winner is going to get to get rid of three corruption. You get to look under your um, little piggy bank, piggy bank <laughs> and take out three corruption. And that's basically the only point at which you're going to get to get a sneak peek and go, oh, whew, I don't have as many as I thought, or holy crap, I have way more than I need. Second place actually gets corruption. One, two, three, four for the the second, you know, the second place, third exactly. place, fourth place, and so on. So you're actually going to get corruption if you're not the top bidder. But of course, you're having to pay money to do this, so you're going to end up with less money to win the game at the end if you overpay, which I way overpaid (laughs) when we were paying. Everyone was like, I bet three, I bet five, I bet 12. Oops. Oops. (laughs) I guess I kind of overpaid for that a little bit. (laughs) Um, I guess... um, Maybe maybe that's it. I think I've basically covered the, the basic parts right. of the game. You're going to, on your turn, you're basically going to either build up your cards or you're going to build things onto the board. Um, oh, I know. The one thing that I did forget was the mosaics. There's right, one There's cool. one specific type of piece that's a little different than the other pieces, and it's played on the sort of garden that's on the top of the box. And these pieces, think of like Tetris pieces, or if you're familiar with the game, Blockus. Perfect. Um, They're kind of rectangular, and they're oddly sort of, they have little offshoots, so they're not just long rectangles. They're kind of bent up rectangles. So you can play these at any any way that you want, onto this grid, onto the board, and you can score them in one of two ways. You can either try to place them over their little bushes that if you put the mosaic tiles down in the garden over those bushes, you're going to get extra money 
for each bush that you cover up with the mosaic. But the other really cool strategy is you can try to form what's called a sanctuary. Um, and you form those sanctuaries by putting your mosaics in a way that blocks off an area of the garden um, that's totally sealed off, either by the walls or by other pieces of your mosaic. Um, if you do that, you can put one of your little Anubis statues in that sanctuary and for every space in that sanctuary at the end of the game you're going to get to subtract one corruption token for each one of those spaces so it's a great way if you see that you've been taking you've just been taking your corruption magnet <laughs> it's a great way to say well i can go with that strategy as long as i focus on the mosaic sure tiles right. and try to put those on the board so that i can you know get rid of enough corruption to, to give me a chance to win the game. Um, just elegant mechanics. You know, you have just a simple choice of resources or building. You're going to get money. There's a race to build certain aspects, but the, the whole corruption balancing act in the game, I think, is just makes this game really enjoyable and really uh, unique. I, I can't think of a game that combines this sort of model building aspect with the the spatial sense of the mosaics with the the economy and the exactly. flipping of the cards i just i i really enjoyed this game um time for you to start talking <laughs> and me to take a breath <laughs> i liked it <laughs> next no thank you <laughs> no this this game rocks i thought the neatest thing about this game is you absolutely cannot win the game unless you're slightly corrupt <laughs> you, you can't start and say, well, I'll ju I just won't take any of those corrupt cards. I'm just going to build everything nice and safe and pretty. Not going to happen. So everybody's going to take corruption, and you're going to see everybody taking it, and it starts to get really hard to get, you know, I think he's been taking plenty. I'll take a couple more. Then the other person goes, oh, he's been taking them. I'll take a couple more. All of a sudden, you're, there's just tons of corruption in there, but you're not quite sure of just exactly who's taking what. And that's just brilliant. It's, <laughs> unless you're one of those people with a photographic memory and you've known exactly what everybody's put in there, there's no way in hell you can keep track of what's in those pyramids. Yeah, yeah. You know, that mixed with the, the fact that the game is kind of game and a game and a game. Mm -hmm. You know, there's little portions of it that kind of, they all add to the, the greater whole, but they kind of have their, a little individual feel to them. Yeah. It's just really neat. And I was surprised at how easy this game was to learn. Yes. You know, our friend Jason taught it to us. We, we own the copy, but we've never played it. So he said, hey, I've played it a bunch of time. I'll come over and teach you. Wham! It was like under five minutes, I think. <laughs> and we were playing the game and knew exactly what we were supposed to be doing. Since we were still recovering from the Marvel Heroes <laughs> debacle, it was like, are you are you sure? Are you sure we're not That's forgetting something? Come on, there's got to be something more to this because for the amount of strategy that right. there, there is in the game, there's you know not a lot of... In, the rules don't encumber the strategy. Yeah, not I guess all. that's the way I would put it. Um, I wonder if anybody has... I haven't looked online. I wonder if people have painted up their palace components. Oh, I bet they have. And stuff. I would they bet. had to have. I, I would think so. I'll, if they have, I'll include some pictures that, in the, the enhanced podcast for sure. That would be very fun because it certainly looks really cool once you're done building, especially the little row of sphinxes as you enter the palace and mm -hmm. the obelisks. It's just really cool. I'd say if... There's no way I want to say this game has a downfall, but you know the little dice with the um, onks on them? Yes. Um, I know in our game, and I've read in other people's games, that this really doesn't occur very much at all. Now, maybe you don't want it to occur very much because it is painful if, you're, if yeah. you don't win that darn auction, but it seems to me like... 
You know, yeah. Maybe a couple of those dice could have been weighted with a couple more onks. Yeah, instead of having all blanks and then right. except for one side with an onk, you could have some. Maybe there's one that's like five onks and one blank, four onks and two blanks, and so on and so forth. So it becomes more and more, you know. I think it, didn't we only do one auction for the entire game? And from what Jason was saying, that he's played it, uh, you know, almost. Uh, I think he said like a dozen times. Right. And he said. In general, that's the average is, you know, if you get two auctions, that's not the norm. One auction per game is pretty... And since, I guess that's the one... um, Maybe if you had more than that one, that would be too much of a luck... You know, you know, introduced into the game. I don't know. Yeah, but it it is one of the... One of the more... uh, One of the mechanics that gives you an opportunity to interact with people... Right. ...in the game that there's not a ton of... Other than those character cards that let you take things, you're kind of off in your own little world doing your things, and you can kind of affect people by... If you took the market stall that they were wanting, they could be like, you bastard. (laughs) Right. But there's not as much interaction in that auction is the one place where you definitely have a little more interaction. And if you knew that the auction was going to happen more often, you're going to be forced to keep an eye on those onk dice a little closer yes. because you need to prepare for that auction. Yes. If you're caught, you know, with your shorts down, you're going to be in trouble because that's way too expensive to be taking all those corruption tokens. <laughs> yep. If you're caught with your shorts down, you could get bit in the ass. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> yeah, there's. A, I love the slippery slope of the corruption. You, you think you can keep taking more, but you have to really pay attention to what other people are taking or you're going to end up sacrifice the crocodiles at the end. It, right. Just overall, it just you can't say enough about how good Days of Wonder has been in the last few years at putting out really top-notch, beautiful-looking games, right. interesting games, and finding mechanics that exactly. you don't have an easy referent to say, oh, it's just like this. Right. And that's that's way to their their credit, I think. Um, so I would I would highly recommend... Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. Very much. Especially for $35, it's it's worthy of a, a spot on your shelf. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So we had some good guesses for our uh, our mystery connection game from uh, last week. Uh, if you remember, the two games on the spotlight last time were uh, Phoenix and uh, Dragon Master. And uh, unfortunately, we're we're batting a thousand here. We thought again. That, I thought this would be easier. Yeah, I thought I this really one did. people would just hit out of the park, but uh, nobody got the mystery connection. Uh, but we're going to change the rules up a little from now on. We we've had a, a rethinking just from some listener suggestions and things. And from now on, if no one gets the mystery connection, if no one can make that scary leap and get inside <laughs> our heads and figure out what our mystery connection is, then we'll pick the guests that that we like the most. You know, it could be the most creative, could be the totally out there and left field one. Cool. Um, you know, it could be you know one that we get from several different listeners, like it's going to be this time. Um, but we're going to pick uh, the guest that we like the most, and then of the people that had that guess, one of them is going to be the lucky winner of the spiel dice. We're still, you know, if you get the guess, the connection that we pick, that's yeah. that's 
priority number Bingo. one. You're still going to have to try to go for that. But if we get a week, because we want to give the dice away, we don't really want to hold on to them. But no. we want you to yeah, earn them. It. We want you to earn them. So <laughs> you have to earn them either by being creative and cool with your your the way you're thinking about these games, or you have to be able to to think like we do, which is a scary prospect <laughs> yeah, that's, at best. So uh, the other thing I wanted to remind people, just in general, too, when you're sending us email at Stephen at thespiel.net. Or Dave at thespiel.net. Is to include where you're from and how to pronounce your name so that when we heap praise on you in in the episode that we mentioned your name, we actually don't butcher your name. Uh, I'm very good at butchering names. <laughs> yes, uh, as are <laughs> we both. So that would be awesome if if you're going to send us an email, just tell us, you know, give us some clues on how to pronounce your name and where you're from so we can give credit where credit is due. Sweet. So on to the, the good guesses this week, not the right ones. We still, I still like our connection best, yeah. but, but we had some really good ones. Um, so you want to go first, um, or, okay, I'll start here. Um, so we had Robin in uh, Cambridge, England had two really good guesses. Um, his first guess was that the connection was fire or flames. The, the Phoenix is reborn out of fire or flames and, uh, dragons traditionally breathe fire. Bingo. That's a really good connection. Um, the second connection was Harry Potter. <laughs> what? Which Dumbledore has a pet Phoenix. And in the Triwizard Contest, Harry combats a Norwegian Ridgeback Dragon. <laughs> Damn, I wish Which, I'd thought of that. Yeah, he's he's out there. <laughs> he's he's consistently coming up with, with good ones. Um, Felipe in Portugal also guessed the connection had something to do with fire and mythological beasts. And then our friend uh, Crazy Dave in uh, Wisconsin, uh, he plays with fire and then goes out on a limb. He guesses that the phoenix is also known as the firebird. Often on a darkened night, the phoenix is confused with the dragon. Therefore, becoming a master at phoenix could be considered as being a dragon master. <laughs> and then he asks, do I get tanga points for this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll add it to my we wish. four tangas. No. <laughs> um, Dave also wanted listener John, uh, who a few episodes back guessed that Dave was an engineer who went to school in Milwaukee. Uh, he wanted him to know that he nailed the city but got the school wrong. Dave's actually a Marquette alum. Ah. So, <laughs> Mr. I'm sure everyone has been uh, wait, staying up late at night wondering. <laughs> exactly. Well, now you know. Yes. <laughs> I did have a couple guesses, but they're the same guesses. But I want to go ahead and mention that uh, Victor Hawk sent in a guess also with a mythological connection and the fire connection. And we also had Dave Gullett. Um, known as Dave Bow, who his connection was also the mythological fiery animals. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot go in that direction, and it's important because we think that's the that's going to be the winner this week of the the creative the most creative one. So we had let's see how many five Robin Felipe Dave Victor and another Dave and another Dave. So that's going to be you can hear them right here. Here are the dice, and the winner is going to be. Cool. Felipe in Portugal has won himself a set of Spiel laser etched dice. Yeah. So we'll be contacting you, uh, Felipe, and uh, get your address from you and send those dice on the way as soon as we can. Congratulations, and uh, hope you enjoy playing the, the Backshelf Spotlight Connection game. We, we have a lot of fun with it. But we have unfinished business. We have to let you know what the connection actually was since you all... You've let us down two weeks in a I row. I can't believe I, this. I, can't, I thought this one was easy. I really uh, did. Absolutely. Um, so the connection is that 
Both games have designers whose names contain colors. Ta-da! <laughs> We have Michael Gray, who's the designer of Dragon Master, and Zach and Amanda Green Voss, who are the designers of Phoenix. Uh, so that was the connection. Nobody, uh, nobody even came close this I time. I can hear the oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, remember, you can send your guesses. They're going to be um, the, this week's going to be a little bit different, but you can send your uh, submissions this week to Stephen at thespiel dot net or Dave at thespiel dot net. And on with the backshelf spotlight. So here we go. Um, this week we're doing a little something different, and I thought it was a great suggestion by one of our listeners. So um, it's a slight departure from our typical spotlight. Um, this one comes from a listener, Joel in Georgia, who uh, helped us out with a game sommelier suggestion right. in the past too. Um, so cheap ass games has been around for about a decade now, and has over a hundred different games, including expansions out. Um, Joel wants to know which of the cheap ass games. Belong on everyone's shelves. In other words, which ones are the classics, the surefire hits, the the, the cheap ass essentials? Cool. We'll call it. So for this week, we're going to present you with kind of again another rapid fire <laughs> edition. We're going to give you what we think are the of all those hundreds of games out there from cheap ass. Which are the games that we think are worthy of of just almost any gamer would enjoy these games for for a variety of different reasons. Um, with the added benefit of, with the connection contest this week, there's no excuse. Every single listener should be involved in the competition this week because all you have to do to enter is send us an email and tell us what your favorite cheap ass game is. If you do that, you're entered into the dreaded backshelf spotlight connection game. And it's that simple. <laughs> there's a set of dice here that has your name on it. If you just send us an email and and tell us what you think your uh, favorite cheap ass game is, um, we'll probably put something up on the forums too for people to to you know banter back and forth cool. about cheap ass games with this episode, just because that would be fun. Um, but you have no excuse <laughs> if you don't if you don't win a dice. You can't you can't say that. This this connection was too hard because the connection is you to us. Bingo. <laughs> That's the only connection that has to be made, <laughs> and you you're entered in the contest. So uh, enough blabbering. Let's get to the games. Cool. So I think we've what picked like ten. I think so. I think, think unintentionally uh, it wasn't right, exactly. like we set out to pick ten, but it, exactly. it, we think you know out of the hundred, here's here's ten that that would be good on on any person's shelf. You'd be in good shape with any of these. So go first. <laughs> well, we have to start off. With one of my at least favorite titles, this game, Devil Bunny Needs a Ham. <laughs> It was published in '98. It's for two to five players, ages 10 and up. The huge ticket price of two dollars and fifty cents. And we'll mention this one time. It was designed by James Ernest. Yes. As are everything in our list. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Devil Bunny Need a ha Needs a Ham. Has kind of a crazy theme to it. All the players are sous chefs trying to get to the top floor of a skyscraper. Of course, they're scaling up the outside of it. <laughs> However, we don't know why. there's a crazy, bloodthirsty, maniacal devil bunny attempting to catch them and heave them off of the building. Okay, <laughs> so thematically, that's what it is. The game is basically just a really cool little dice rolling game where you're trying to move your pawns. From the bottom of the board up to the top of the board. The one unique thing is that you can only move diagonally, um, and you, of course you've got this crazy devil bunny chasing you 
all over the building trying to boink, boink, knock you right back off. Mm-hmm. This, like I said, it is kind of just a simple roll, roll and move type of game, but it's fun. I, I'm not sure if I can explain why, but I really enjoy playing this game. I think one of the things that I really dug about this game was it was either last Gen Con or the Gen Con before. They have a life-size <laughs> yes. devil bunny needs a hand. Yes. <laughs> so they pass out the aprons and the chef hats. Everybody dons those, gets their spot on the building, on the floor, and then one of the cheap-ass employees is wearing a set of devil bunny ears. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just too fun. I think it's a perfect example of the theme trumping Big the, the mechanic that the theme makes up for whatever the mechanic might lack you it's, know it's not going to win any steel de jars <laughs> right. anytime soon but it's just so wacky and fun to sit i mean you can sit and play it's a great filler game for five yeah. bucks you know or five minutes i mean just absolutely silly but fun yeah um so my uh next game i'm gonna mention here is ben hurt uh, 96 was when it was published. It's for four to six players. It's about, a, about an hour-long game. I think the cool thing about the, the games you're going to see on all of these different games is the the variety and right. the breadth of games Completely that Cheap Ass offers. You can go from the filler game. Just because they cost 250 doesn't mean that they're all filler games right. that that you know you're just going to play in between other games. You can have meteor games or you can have the other kinds – they, right. they run the gamut, basically. Yeah, you got dice games, card games, board games, tile games, you name it. Um, they're all in this list. So Ben Hurt fits the board game uh, category. Um, any game with a well-aimed cat card <laughs> just has to be in your collection. I just... You have to have it. <laughs> ben Hurt is a chariot racing game with a pre-race rounds of card auctioning. The trick being that you the race winning pot is made up of all the auction bids that you've made on the cards the round before. You want to try to get good cards cheap, and you want to force your opponents to overpay for uh, the uh, the cards that they're going to take. Of course, everybody's trying to do the same thing. And, of course, there's a good deal of luck in moving the chariots during the race, so your careful planning could be <laughs> foiled at the whim of, of some dice rolls exactly. in the middle of the game. But there's a, there's a fun auction element. The cards are hilarious They're and allow awesome. you to do really fun things and to kit out your uh, chariots <laughs> with different, you know, it has kind of a car wars feel to it in right. that the way you, you, there are different drivers that have different, you know, abilities and stats and, and just ways you can modify your, your chariots to win the races. Um, not complicated again, but um, very fun. You could even do some gambling with it. There's definitely a way to, to do some gambling with this one, too, which would be fun. I've um, lost my shorts on this game a couple times. <laughs> but Ben Hurt definitely, I think, should be in your, your cheap-ass cheap collection. Definitely. Um, how about you? Next up, you can't have this list without Kill Dr. Lucky. Absolutely. Published in 96. It's for two to eight players, ages 10 and up. The original paper envelope game is out of print. You can get the $7.50 box game, or you can get the new high-tech, full-color, <laughs> big box version for only 30 bucks. And this is a really good game. This is one that I'd be willing to pay $30 for because it's probably one of the best of cheap-ass games, period. I would say so, yeah. So thematically, as luck has it, You've all been invited to the J. Robert Lucky Mansion, a sprawling county estate 10 miles north of, you guessed it, nowhere. (laughs) It's a great little country home. It's chock full of weapons, good hiding places, and of course you, the killers. (laughs) That's right. The object of this game is to kill Dr. Lucky. Lucky. (laughs) Go figure. So everybody starts the game in the drawing room. 
From there, you're going to be attempting to move through the mansion, find some really cool weapons, finally catch up with the old codger, trap him in a room where nobody, nobody can else can see, see you, and then off him. Wham! <laughs> and you win the game. How can that not be fun? Yeah. <laughs> sort of clue in reverse, kind exactly. of. Exactly. <laughs> I just love this game, and, and they've also got several different boards out for this. Mm-hmm. I think there may be four or five different boards Um I know that there's one on a space station, or maybe I'm confusing it with Save Dr. Lucky, because yeah, also are, yeah. its counterpoint to this game is one called Save Dr. Lucky, <laughs> but, but there still are a handful of boards out there, and it's just a classic, cool, cheap-ass game. This is a must-own. Yeah, yeah, and the, the weapons are hilarious. Yeah. You know? I'm, ki- I'm going to attempt to kill Dr. Lucky with the tight hat <laughs> in the conservatory, or the what bad cream, oh, or yeah, the loud noise. The loud noise is great. Just hilar- or the Civil War cannon. It's just all over the map. They're just... It's absolutely, I would say, probably my one of my favorite. It is, games. and this one we were talking earlier about the theme trumping the game. This game has both. Yeah. It's full tilt on both sides. It's great. Yep. Um, next is probably one of the cheapest of all the cheap-ass games. It's called The Big Idea. It was published in uh, 2000, three to six players, 30 minutes. Um, it's fast, silly fun from a game that will fit in your back pocket. The original version of this game was one of their hip pocket games that I think was $2. Wow. Um, just tiny little cards that you could fit. I think the current edition is around 10 and is in their sort of standard little white cardboard box. Cool. Um, still in that sort of cheap ass mode of you know light on the components but heavy on the the thinking through of the game so they're actually good games. Um, players represent venture capitalists creating products from noun and adjective cards. Your products could be things like erotic chowder or mentholated shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you gain shares in companies that you create, and later you have opportunities to secretly or publicly invest in other people's companies. A die roll determines which companies go public, and stocks pay out based on the number of shares and cards that are used in the companies. Uh, It's great fun creating these goofy-ass products and uh, agonizing over having to help your uh, opponents in order to help yourself. It has that nice uh, decision-making mechanic in it where you have to help them to help you, which I always always love. And the humor value of the developing the the cards is really, really fun. I I know Um, that I like this game enough that I put all my cards in little protective card sleeves (laughs) and and also created a bunch of our own. Oh, totally. Uh, Because you could just, any card that you can come (laughs) up with, throw in the deck and the combinations just get zany. Definitely. Um, Okay, next. Next, if you're going to have this list, you have to have Lord of the Fries. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Published in 1998, it's for three to eight players, ages 10 and up, around 15 bucks for the cool color version of it. (laughs) Uh, So in this, you and your zombie friends are trying to fill orders at... Freddy's Fast Food Restaurant of the Damned. I think it's, I think it's Fridays. Is it Fridays? Yeah. It's, it is Fridays, just spelled the wrong <laughs> way. You're absolutely right. So basically the way you're going to try and fill all these orders is with all the components which are on cards which are in your hands. <laughs> and it comes with this cool little menu. Now, I have the deluxe super cool version, so I have like eight menus to choose from. Instead of just the traditional Friday's menu, I've got the Asian menu, the Mexican menu, the holiday menu. So every time we sit down and play, we can choose which menu we want. <laughs> but the premise of the game is basically you're rolling a die, 
um, finding out which item on the menu you're attempting to fill. And then when it comes to your turn, if you can fill it, you play those cards out. If you can't fill it, you're going to have to pass. But passing is kind of cool, too, because you get to pass one of the cards to the left. Because the object of the game is to be first player to get rid of all your cards. It's that simple. But just the items on the menus are so cool that you'll spend the whole time playing this game just laughing at the names of these items. you got... Chickabunga, Cowabunga. Yeah, there's like Chickabunga Kunga. <laughs> like the Vegan Delight. I mean, and some of the other, I like the Asian menu is called, the restaurant is the Long Walk on a Short Pier. <laughs> but like Montezuma is the, the Mexican deli. Yeah. You've got like the secret Tijuana Deathmatch. Of course, it's two drinks, a bird, and a meat. <laughs> yeah. So there's all kinds of like bird, meat, does fish, have the, drink. Does that have the Christmas menu on it? It does, the holiday the, menu. The adoration of the baby cheeses is one of my, fa- one of my <laughs> Absolutely. favorites. Absolutely. <laughs> right along with the, uh, what was the other one, the uh, Soylent Night. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a classic, very fun. Look this one up in any of its versions. So in keeping with that, I can't believe the one thing you did not mention that has to uh, be mentioned about this game is, hello, zombies. <laughs> The game is about zombies. True. I mean, that inherently makes it more cool than other cheap-ass <laughs> games right there. So in keeping right. with the zombie theme, because in, in uh, um, Lord of the Fries and Give Me the Brain, you're playing zombies in a fast food restaurant. Um, my next one on, on the cheap-ass essentials is Dead Money. Um, it's a wacky cross between poker and the cheap-ass classic Give Me the Brain. Uh, players are cowboy zombies trying to lose all their cards and money by playing poker. However, in order to activate or play many cards, you need a brain that passes from player to player through bids and dice rolls throughout the game. We've cut. Co- we've actually covered this in great detail in episode 15, so I'm not going to go into cool. any more detail than that. Check out episode 15 if you want to find out more about dead money. Sweet. That brings me up to the next one. Renfield, published in 1999, 48 players, ages 10 and up, unfortunately out of print, but I'm sure if you dig enough, you'll be able to find it. We've also discussed this on an earlier episode. I'm not sure which episode, but look this one up. Um, Quickly, thematically, you're all grave diggers. You're so bored that all you can do is play this card game, Renfield. Mm -hmm. And it's a gambling game. And it's completely opposite. It's a trick-taking game where you have to pay for the tricks that you take. And you <laughs> have to flies. be... Yeah, with there's these little bugs on the cards. The only way you can win a hand is to take cards with bugs. But only out of all the people who've taken cards with bugs, you have to have taken the least number of bugs. <laughs> if you're going to gamble with this, I recommend trying it once or twice first. Because you're going to lose your butt <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. start off gambling first. Because the strategy is wacky, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, next, we've got Deadwood. Uh, it was published in 1999. It's for three to eight players, and it's one hour. One thing I think is p- important to note about a lot of these games is how large the player range is. A lot of times with like Euro games, they're all three to five or three to four. A lot of these cheap ass games, they might have. I mean, you might have to have at least three, but you can you play can with like eight, ten right. people, which there are not a lot of games out there that aren't cheap ass that you can play a lot of games with. So, and Deadwood fits that category exactly. as well. So that's just you know definitely a reason to have these kind of games on yourself because you might be in a situation where oh I want to play a oh, game but I've got, got six people. Exactly. What do you pull off the shelf? Well, I'd say any of these are or would be awesome. So in Deadwood, uh, where else can you play Man on Fire? Woman in black dress or falls off roof in the same afternoon. In Deadwood, you play movie extras working on a lot of a studio making westerns. Cheesy, like, B-movie, spaghetti western kind of movies. 
players use six-sided dice to represent themselves and are trying to upgrade themselves from twos to sixes to get the best-paying roles. It's fast-paced. It's hilarious. Uh, it has kind of an interesting mechanic and strategy, and I think the extra bonus is that there are a lot of expansion packs to it that add different kinds of movies, horror, right. musicals, kung fu, kung fu or- science fiction. So if you actually like the game, you can buy these little expansion packs of cards and you get extra, even extra play out of it. But I would definitely recommend uh, Deadwood. That's a great game. So last on the list, Starbase Jeff. Published in 1998, or next to last, for two <laughs> to four players, ages 10 and up, unfortunately out of print. This is the only game on the list that is a tile-laying game from Cheap Ass. They've had a couple, but I think this is one of the cool ones. This basically takes place in space on a starbase, and you're putting together pieces of the starbase. The cool thing is, this is a gambling game. (laughs) So you play with money, you have to pay money to acquire the pieces, then as you put it together and create connections to allow um, connections from one place to another, you earn money. So it's a really cool kind of game that's a la that clever pipeline game Mm. and stuff like that. But thematically, it's really cool and brings in that element that Cheap Ass loves so much. The gambling. Yep. Gotta love that. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Those guys love to gamble. So look up this one. You should... out of print, but you can dig it up if you really want it. Yep. Uh, lastly, for real this time, <laughs> um, in our cheap ass essential uh, recommendations is Get Out. Uh, it's published in 1998. Again, two to eight players. This one is like a two hour game. This is a serious ass game. And the reason for that is it is a Monopoly style game with three tracks instead of one and a couple of nice little mechanical twists. The squares on the outer board are your jobs. The middle board are your apartments, um, and you can take as many jobs as you want, but you, each one slows you down and makes it harder to move around the board, um, and, and obviously making it harder to get around to that payday square on the board. Um, money doesn't even really matter anyway, because the real point of the game is to spend four months in the terrifying center ring of the board, <laughs> which allows you to try to get a life and move out of your mom's basement. Sweet. <laughs> so that's basically the object of the game. Monopoly, where you're trying to move out of your mom's basement and get I'm a job. I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we both are. <laughs> so I think this will set you up if you if you went out. And the great thing is, all these games are around $10 or less. You get 10 games for under $100. You could have all 10 of these games. And it's well under 100 because several of these games oh, yeah. are less than $10. They're in the 4 or $5 category. You would have an excellent nucleus for your cheap-ass game selection um, and collection and would really set you up pretty well. So remember, we want to know what your favorite cheap-ass game is. So send us mail at steven at thespiel.net. Or dave at thespiel.net. We're excited to know what your favorite cheap-ass games are. Most likely they'll differ from ours, so we want to hear everybody. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff the goober in a game can be a factor in having fun. Great goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. Cool, welcome to the raisin section of our show. I mean, goober section of our show. (laughs) Tonight we have a game that has to be on your list of goober, and it's Doom the Board Game. 
published in 2004 by Fantasy Flight, designed by Kevin Wilson. It's for two to four players, ages 12 and up. Looks for 55 bucks. You can find it for between 38 and 44. I'm including the expansion, which is another 40 bucks, which you can find for about 28 to 32 dollars. Um, from what I've read, the game much needs this expansion. So I, I would recommend to anybody to buy this to get the expansion. They fixed a lot of things that the game had problems with with just the basic edition. So my goober list here is Doom and its expansion. Um, in Doom, it's much much like its uh, computer <laughs> counterpart. Um, demonic invaders have broken through from another dimension and have made their home on Mars base. Marines have been deployed to the base to protect personnel and, of course, destroy the invaders. So up to three people can play the Marines. And one person, hopefully me, gets to play the evil <laughs> demonic monsters. Um, what's Dave, <laughs> Dave was born for that role, if yeah, you can't baby. tell. Hell yeah. <laughs> so the Marines are going to spend the whole game fighting their way through just hordes of heinous monsters, trying to collect all kinds of really new, cool weapons and equipment to try and better themselves, all in an effort to complete like a specific mission. And that's what's really cool about the game is um, the scenarios. The game comes with a bunch, and then you can write to your heart's content, all these cool scenarios where you want to send your Marines in to just basically get slaughtered. <laughs> but the reason why it's all in this segment is because of the Goober. Because there are, is a ton of stuff in here. To start off with, there's over a hundred figures. And some of these figures are meaty. I mean, we're talking four inches, five inches, just huge, thuggish, nasty monsters. Um, there's over 150 cards probably 10 or 12 types of different cards. There's over 75 map board pieces. All the rooms, the corridors, the turns, the dead ends, the airless rooms. I mean, it goes on forever. And finally, over 300 tokens. <laughs> there are more tokens in this game than I think I've popped out in a long time. And also it comes with reference sheets, Little 3D stand-up doors with plastic bases. Every player gets their little equipment board to net out and put all their stuff on. There is just tons and tons of stuff. Unfortunately, this game is still on our list, so look for it to come off, hopefully very soon, because we had a demo of this at Gen Con, yeah, and I, it looked really cool. I actually got to play it with the, the designer. With Kevin, right. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see what the weaknesses are, because just in playing through one scenario, I actually kind of liked it. I thought it was pretty interesting. I expected it to be, oh, God, a right. you know, board game version of a video game. This is going to be not so good, but I actually walked away thinking it looked a lot a lot more interesting than I did before I sat down to play it. So I'm really looking forward to this. If you let me play the Demonic Horde of Monsters. I have no problem with that. Cool. So if you're looking for Goober, don't miss out on Doom the Board Game. The Game Sommelier. Or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week... One of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. Here's Dave with this week's challenge. Well, we finally made it to the Game Sommelier section of the show. <laughs> so much for being short. Exactly. <laughs> so if you'll remember from the last episode that Stephen's on the hot seat tonight, and his challenge was to find five games 
that you could buy for under $10. The only stipulations are they can't be cheap-ass games, and they have to be meaty, gamerly games, as <laughs> as nasty as they get for under 10 bucks. Yep. <laughs> so, let's see what you got. Well, this was a good challenge. This was uh, more difficult than I thought, but yet it introduced me to some games that huh? some some I know, some I've heard tell of, and I think fit the description, cool. and some that I just had just came out of nowhere. Um, that was it was fun for me to get to find some new games like that as well. So, awesome. um, as well as a couple old friends is great in there. So let's just jump right in. So the first two are by the same designers, and they're they're kind of thematically connected, but they're not sequels. And I've actually mentioned one of them on oh. our holiday game gift guide cool. because that's where I initially discovered it. The first one is Verotter. Ah. Um, 1998, Marcel Andre Casasola Merkel. Is the designer Odlung Spila is the um, publisher? Three to four players, about an hour, eight ninety five at Fun Again. I've seen it other places for under ten as well. Cool. Um, it's a board game designed de- yeah, a board game desi- disguised as a card game. Uh, the Rose and Eagle factions are vying for control of different districts. Players are trying to change the allegiance of a district by playing power cards and by selecting a role, a different role each turn, a la something like citadels, ah. um, including the Verader or Traitor, which allows people to switch sides before the different conflicts in the game begin. I just for eight ninety five. There's an amazing amount of depth and strategy there. I still haven't played this one, but I've heard nothing but good things about it, and I think it totally fits the the qualifications. Well, I, I'm not familiar with it either. I'm going to have to give it a thumbs up though, because it sounds really cool. Especially for that price, there's no reason not to try it. Yeah, sounds, yeah, that's great. Thumbs up, number one. So the second one, which is related, like I said, okay. is called Muterer. Uh, which was designed in 2000. Same designer, Marcel Andre Casasola Merkel. Cool. I just like saying that. Heck yeah. Odlung <laughs> uh, Spila, three to four players an hour, also 895. Um, this is not an expansion to Verotter, but an entirely new successor. This is kind of the flavor text about okay. the game. With the Highlands pacified in Verotter, we now move to the ocean. Through bluff and strategy, players try to turn against the ship's captain, seizing profits intended to be turned at turned over at the next port. Uh, the game includes a kind of pirate variant uh, set of rules as well as the, the main rule. It's a pirate game. It's a strategy game. It's under $10. There you uh, go. Steven had to play the pirate card. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to give you a theme, a thumb up then. <laughs> <laughs> a thumb up my theme. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on, number three is Exactica. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 2002 Set Enterprises is the um, publisher. Unfortunately, they don't credit their designers. Shame on you, Set Enterprises. Right. Uh, two to ten players with this game. 45 minutes. Uh, you can find it for $8 at cardhouse.com. It's C A R D H A U S. Cool. Um, .com. Exactica is an original card game which challenges players' abilities to estimate the outcome of playing eight cards. You must predict the chances of being able to take the other player's cards that are laid down during each round. There's no drawing and no discarding. You must predict exactly, hence the name Exactica, the number of rounds in which you will be able to take the cards played. As play evolves, cards that appear too weak to take a trick initially may become strong enough to do so as the hand evolves. 
The outcome of a hand is not determined until the end of these eight rounds. You have to keep on your toes and figure out how to take as well as avoid taking tricks, in other words. There are a number of ways to play each hand, but finding the way to make exactly the right number of bids is a really cool and brain-hurting challenge. This game, I can remember us oh. just going, it blindsided uh, that, us as, yeah. as far as how meaty this game was. The different symbols that make well, up each what... Each card could be one of four different suits, right? Which yes. changed quite often, and my head hurt with this little card game. Yes. It, it was definitely meaty for anybody who's a fan of trick-taking games. This, this was, is this is at the very top, it, it I was think, freaky. Uh, of that, that category. I, I have to give you a thumbs up for that one. That was... I remember that being very painfully meaty. <laughs> <laughs> um, along those same lines uh, of meaty trick-taking games, cool. I think we got to throw in Moo and more. Uh, <laughs> I think you've outdone yourself with that one. <laughs> 2003, it was published. Doris Mathaus and uh, Frank Nestle uh, are the pub- are Do- of Doris and Frank games. Yep. Those people might be familiar to some people. Uh, Rio Grande Games is the American distributor and publisher. Uh, three to six players. It's about 90 minutes, which is not an exaggeration for this uh, brain-hurting, trick-taking game. You can find it for $7.76 at boardsandbits.com, which is an excellent value and no reason that you shouldn't have this one in your collection if you like trick-taking games. I think Moo is regarded by many as one of the best offerings as a trick in the trick-taking card game genre. Players reveal cards to declare their bids. The highest bidder becomes the chief, and the second highest bidder becomes the vice. The vice and the chief choose a trump, either a number or a suit, and then players try to capture tricks to score the most points. The chief chooses a partner in the game as well that tries to cover the bid uh, to score bonus points, while the vice and remaining players try to stop the chief from reaching that goal. That's as close as I could possibly <laughs> come to explaining this game in four sentences or less. And believe me, that was a struggle. Um, it also includes the and more part, five other game um, rules for other games that you can play with this deck of card, which are good, not necessarily quite as meaty, but are definitely good games. And to top it off, it was a Spiel de Jahr nominee in 1996. So there you go, Moo and more. Best game on your list so far. That game rocks. <laughs> if you're a fan of trick-taking games like Euchre and such, this is the king of the hill. might take you a little while to negotiate the rules, but once you play a couple of hands, you're like, wow, how the hell did they come up with this? It's like some melding of Euchre and Bridge and just all these other games, and it's wonderful. Thumbs way the heck up. <laughs> Good. I get a I get a mutant giant thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so lastly um, is an old friend that some people might know. It's been around for a little while. I, th- I think of it as being older than it is. It actually, it was only published in 2001. Proteus. Ah. Uh, Francis K. La Lumiere is the um, designer. Steve Jackson Games is the publisher. It's two players. Um, it's about 30 minutes, so it's a little on the shorter side, but I think it definitely is meaty for being a shorter-type yep. game. You can buy it for $6.71 at boardsandbits.com. Um, from the folks who brought you Nightmare Chess comes Proteus, a dice game that plays a little like chess and a lot like nothing you've ever seen before. <laughs> That's the canned <laughs> tagline. Cool. It's played on a standard chess board. Each side gets eight dice with different pieces of chess pieces on each of the faces. You start with eight pawns, but each turn you get to change one of your dice to a more powerful piece. But as your pieces get more powerful, they become worth more points to your opponent. 
game is very easy to learn because it's basically chess with a few dice variations, but mastering the intricate strategies, I think, prove a lot harder, and it's just a great little chess variant that you get the kind of meatiness of chess, but not without the length. You can sit down and play this game in a very short period of time without it being, you know, uh, as as long a time commitment. I have to agree with that pick also. I remember when we played this, I just think it's so cool. It is as simple as chess. Not that simple. Chess is, <laughs> chess is simple to learn how to play. Yeah. How to master, that's a different story. But I like this game that you can just throw it in your pocket, you know, I mean, t- and take it anywhere where there happens to be a chessboard or a checkerboard and play. It's great, strategic, cheap. Yeah. Awesome. Another thumbs up. That's five thumbs up. Great. Thanks. I I had to work for this one, but uh, I think, you know, especially for the cheap deals out there, I mean, that's great. You could definitely, for most of these were well under the $10 right. mark. They're around the five, six, seven, eight dollars right. So let's see, that's five games. Let's average it out. Like $8, $40, $40, $40, we'll say, for about $40 with ch- you know shipping and stuff like that. There's five really nice, meaty games that you could add to your collection so you don't have to yeah, go think, break the bank to find. I think this is a challenge that's going to help all of our listeners because if you got 40 bucks in your pocket i think maybe this is one we should revisit every you know every six months or every year just to to try to see what's out there right that you know fits that gamer on a budget but wants something that isn't you know fluff because they tend to be kind of fluffy games if if they're short if they're less in price so you did a great job you found some wonderful games cool um well here we go with uh, your challenge for this week. Good to, good to turn the tables on on you here. So there's a holiday coming up here, and it's not the Super Bowl, oh, I, although I, that I, might be the national <laughs> holiday. This challenge comes from Tim Coffley in Seattle, Washington. Um, his challenge is uh, he, the challenge that he wants to put to you is that you need to find five games for an intimate evening of gaming for two that ideally would have a shred of romance. Oh, my God. <laughs> I.e., he actually qualifies that by saying, you know, it could have some reference to hearts or roses, and that might count on the outside, in the theme of the game or in the play of the game. So you can get risque. You can go whichever direction you want with this. Um, but but wait, there's more, okay? Oh, no. Um, so how about they have to all fit in an overnight bag oh, somehow no. because you're gone away for a little romantic Valentine's Day retreat, so you have to still leave room for some clothes or a, a negligee or your boxer shorts so in the bag as the well. Cinderella Palace theme room at your local <laughs> hourly uh, rate hotel. The no-tell motel. <laughs> <laughs> what are you all doing in there? We're playing games, <laughs> but not the games you think. <laughs> Fine, you couldn't make this easy. I thought you were just going to turn a table and say, find five games that each cost $200. <laughs> yeah. No, that, I That get... would be too easy for you, Mr. Big Budget. <laughs> oh, no. So don't blame me. Blame Mr. Coffley in Seattle for this one. I saw that, and I was like, ooh, <laughs> I'm saving that one for a special, special occasion. We are so in trouble with these picks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, good luck with that. Sweet. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So we had some really good responses. We had one really long response from uh, Joel in Georgia responding to your Game Sommelier picks last week. And then some other really good tips and and questions in the mailbag. So let's, let's just get right to it. 
Um, so Joel, we'll start with Joel since he's got a nice, he wrote this really nice long letter um, responding to your picks. So I'm just going to start reading here and, and let you respond after. Okay. So, um, hey guys, looks like I have some work to do because I haven't played any of the games on the Game Sommelier <laughs> list. I can't give any thumbs, unfortunately, since I don't have any experience with these games. But he goes on to say that it's actually kind of a gift that the games Dave chose were unfamiliar familiar to me because the opposite would have been worse. Five games I'm already familiar with, that would have been boring. I'm reminded of a quote somebody about somebody who has a vast collection of books, and when a friend gaping at the stacks of books asked, have you read them all? The owner said, why would I want a library full of books I've already read? Same thing with games, judging by our list. <laughs> Obviously, we exactly. already kind of know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a good thing to have more, something to look forward to, right? Game, and, games are kind of just <laughs> like books in that way. Yeah, <laughs> and we're surrounded by my <laughs> my library at the moment, so I'm just as bad with books. Um, so instead of commenting on your, your list, he uh, poses his own list okay. of games that he uses because he's an Great. English teacher. Okay. Um, so here's here's his list. It's focused entirely on the English classroom since he's an English teacher. It's also based on what he finds works with his students. So these are tried and tested okay. in the classrooms. Great. So this would be good for other teachers, I think, out there, if anybody's listening. Um, I always try to make sure that the whole class is engaged with these games. So that was kind of a thing we didn't. We let you right. off the hook on that exactly. one. So each of these games can be slightly modified to be played with an entire class. So first one is Apples to Apples. Uh, I used this game at the beginning of the semester to get a feel for how proficient my non-native English speechers speakers are. <laughs> you might think I'm a non-native <laughs> English speaker the way I'm reading here. Uh, just watching them play the game told me a ton about each student's vocabulary and familiarity with English conventions. The kids get into a trance when they play this game, and despite how every turn is kind of samey, they're into it. Each group of six to eight kids can have their own stack of green and red apple cards, so one box of cards can definitely service the whole class. Um, I definitely, I could totally see how that oh, would, yeah. this, that would The fit. more people, the better with this game. Um, Taboo, uh, classic yep. party game. This game is a terrific way to tap into uh, students' divergent thinking skills as well as forcing them to use more advanced cat vocabulary. Also, one of the assistant principals has told me on more than one occasion that when she was in the classroom, she loved to use Taboo with kids. And there's also plenty of cards for the whole class, so I can totally see... We'll give you thumbs on that yeah, one, Tabu too. Taboo is a great game. <laughs> boggle. Um, I don't even really use a real boggle game, he says. I just draw a big boggle grid on the whiteboard and fill it with random letters and let the kids go. I've copied the boggle boards onto paper for smaller group use as well. Oh, cool. That's a very creative yeah, there's way a, there's to do that. There's a game called that. Hexamania that's kind of like Super Boggle that he might take a look at. Oh, cool. I, I don't know about of, that one. It's like a hex-based game, but plays... Kind of like Bogglish, hmm. but because Boggle's an awesome game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These last two I'm not familiar with at all. That, that was the other cool thing. Word Jam. Um, this is a clever and cheap little game that I found can work well in the classroom setting. Basically, you get a category of and five letters. Four letters give you different values of points, and one of the letters you're forbidden to use. The kids have to think of words that score the most numbers of points while avoiding the forbidden letter. Uh. The official rules are a little more complicated, but I found it can keep a class engaged uh, with this game for quite a long time. Sounds which, cool. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Is that one of those Mayfair games? It, I'm thinking that it is. I, I'll put it seems like to, I can to picture the, the box. Notes. I do too, but I, I'm not sure. So the last one is also a game I've never heard of. Um, it's called Why Did the Chicken? <laughs> okay. Um, so he writes, I actually had a principal enter my class for an observation while we were playing this game. Once he figured out what was going on, he participated with as much glee as the kids did. 
basically you get a setup for the for a joke like what happened when the blank married the blank and then you draw two random cards um, that have two random nouns on them, and you have to make up the punchline. <laughs> uh, it's very fun. It's very you know creative, and you can see how that would definitely oh, yeah. re- relate to the language. Uh, developing a sense of humor, he he says, is so often ignored in formal education. And he just he just asks, why is that? Probably because it's so hard to measure, and because there's no curriculum for right. it. And uh, that's he's to be commended for Absolutely. finding that's, a way to bring it great. into the classroom, just to make it not seem so damn serious yeah, all that, the time. That sounds like a lot of fun. So <laughs> I, I, those suggestions are awesome, Joel. And yeah, thanks. I would think I think I would have given him five thumbs up if he had the challenge. That's great. <laughs> so thanks, Joel, for writing in and and. Absolutely, anyone who wants to write in with with challenges for us for the sommelier or any other suggestions, we're all ears. There's also the forums online for that as well, so let us have it. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, Len in Canada writes, I really appreciate the availability of the enhanced version. It makes it easy to listen to a particular segment again. I agree, Stephen puts a lot of hard work in on those guys. So, if you have any good things to say about stuff like that, let us know because I know Stephen works really hard on those. <laughs> yeah, the enhanced podcast takes a lot of extra work, but I know there are people out there who like it, so that's that helps keep me going. <laughs> Lynn also wanted to let us know that he enjoyed the inclusion of Phoenix in the Backshelf Spotlight segment. He said it's one of, it's one of his favorite games. He just regrets that he didn't buy a couple extra copies when a website had it on sale for ten bucks. I would have bought a couple extra copies for $10, too. It must be nice, yeah. Exactly. He says at that price, it would have been a great choice for the, the game sommelier that we just did. Oh, yeah. That's and, t- he's totally right. <laughs> absolutely. Um, when I did talk about that one card that was misprinted, he says he thinks the best way to play it is to let the players have the choice of using the wrong rule or the corrected rule as you set down the play of the game. It makes it, use, it makes it a useful card without being too dominating. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Then he also says uh, that he mentioned it being reprinted, and he wanted to know where that news came from. I found it on Fun Again. I, Good, I've, okay. Um, that was the only place that I've... I haven't seen... I can't find independent confirmation of that. Okay. But if you go to Fun Again and look up Phoenix, it says that it's it's currently scheduled for a reprint. I know I'd um, seen it somewhere. I just I, couldn't I looked at like a Board Game where. News and several other places, and I couldn't find any place that mentions that, but... Fun Again is usually pretty good about that stuff if it's listed like that. Yeah, if they say it's it's, it's legit. Print, yeah. Um, but if anybody knows any information about that, let us know for sure. Sweet. Um, let's see. Um, next on my list, I've got uh, Andreas in Austria emailed us with an awesome gift. Uh, he actually did some color correction on our Spiel uh, header graphics for the, the Spiel website, both the old one and the new one, and they look awesome. They look just great, and um, I'm already u- they're already up and using. You may not have even noticed, but the, the, the difference was remarkable and it does look great couldn't be happier with that little donation of his time and effort so thanks goes out to andrea andreas in uh austria um i'll go with another short one okay. here uh, michael in the netherlands writes uh just wanted you to know that i enjoy your podcast especially the back shelf spotlight as almost all of the games i love and play are back shelfers in other people's collections you guys have good enthusiasm and obviously love what you do keep up the good work so there's our one rah rah. Cool. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. We appreciate it. We glad we're glad you enjoy listening to us because it, it is work, but we have uh, you know it's it hardly counts as work because we have so much <laughs> it's fun. Way doing too it. much fun. <laughs> so Mike in Madison, Wisconsin writes, "Hey guys, wanted to comment a little bit on Dread Pirate. He says he got into gaming a little over a year ago, 
and Dread Pirate's actually one of the first games that he picked up. Now he's got over 40 games. Very cool. He said he saw it in Barnes & Noble. Upon seeing that it had real gold doubloons in it, his <laughs> wife said, We have to have it. It is a simple roll-and-move game, like we said, but the goober in the theme really makes this game enjoyable. He says he's played it several times with non-gamers, and they all love the game. It generally does take too long to play for what it is, but everybody gets sucked into the theme, so it's really fun to play. Um, it's easy to learn, and it, he says it allows for a lot of socializing, which there are games that you need to pick specifically for that reason. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, the map and the bits are enough to draw anybody in. So, <laughs> And on a side note, um, he has something that I did not know about. In 2003 the, is when the game originally came out, not 2006. Yeah, like I, we said, I pretty much screwed that no up. No big deal. There's also an expansion called Dread Pirate Buccaneers Revenge. It adds some mission cards and slightly modifies the game end goals, which that's very cool. Maybe it'll take it from that roll and move thing to maybe just a little more advanced and kind of be more appealing to a wider audience. Makes it kind of more of a hybrid game that way, too. You've yeah. got the gamerly aspects added into it. It sounds pretty cool. He also mentions that he really liked the last episode. Thanks for the review of Sheer Panic and Marvel Heroes. His wife keeps drooling over Sheer Panic because of the cute little sheep, but he kept having the feeling that she wouldn't enjoy the game. But after our review... They can't wait to go out and get it because they know it's going to be a great game. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. Well, that's that's kind of what we're we're here for. We want to try to point you in the right direction with good games and steer you away from the games that that you might want to just keep walking by on. And Marvel Heroes is really one of the first ones that I would think fits that category. But yeah. you know, we're we're here to do both and to show yeah. you mo- mostly to show you how to have the most fun right. with whatever game you're going to sit down and, and play. I think rarely are we going to. Diss a game unless you know it really just well, didn't click with us. We'll, we'll diss it if it deserves dissing. Right. I mean that that's my attitude, and and you know we'll we'll have more more of both in the future. <laughs> There's enough games on the list that are coming up that we don't know a lot about. So yep, <laughs> we'll find stay, out. Stay tuned. We we hope they're all good, but exactly you just never know. Um, lastly, Ankaboot in Malaysia writes in and it says, since you guys are masters at storing board games, maybe you could help me. I need help pa- uh, packing up my battle lore set. The trays they gave us are too small uh, for fast deployment and packing. I would love to keep it all in the original box, though. So do you guys have any tips on how to fit it all and still be able to set up the game fast? So since Dave is sort of the, <laughs> the master at this sort of thing, I'll, I'll pitch this question to him I, from I Ankaboot. think the key for this game is to not get too attached to the little plastic inserts that come in the box. Don't feel yeah. free to set those. I mean, feel free to set those aside. I think most the easiest thing is just to divide your human army and put them in each. Put the uh, cavalry, the uh, mounted units, and the bows each in their own separate little plastic baggie. Then you can put the the dwarves and the goblins in their own baggie, and then put all the flags. And of the uh, what are the pennants are one, yeah. and then the the banners are the other ones. Mm-hmm. Put those in their separate baggies. You should be able to open up a game, pop out the units you want, and quickly attach the flags, and also store them really well, and maybe even have enough room for some expansion stuff in the oh, box. Oh yeah, I think if you get like those quart size zip bags, yep. because then they'll they'll be uh, sealed off, so they're not going to spill out in the ba- in the box when they're loose inside, and I would think you could fit extra yeah, It looks like those. I have a room for a couple expansions in that box. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're going to have a, more than a couple, yeah. but there's at least a little breathing room in there. <laughs> Some of us sitting here might have actually like counted all of the figs out and <laughs> separated them into the poses of the different poses. For once, it wasn't me. 
<laughs> I have to claim guilt on that one. <laughs> but that it definitely helps in terms of being fast to yeah. deploy. Plastic baggies are the key. Yep. <laughs> and sometime in a future segment, we may go into greater detail in this. Yeah, we've got a couple ideas for different segments we may swap in and out, and one of them is going to be kind of a how-to with collecting and, and those kinds of things. So look forward to that down cool. the road. Well, I think we have reached the end. I can hear the plane getting ready to take off for Miami <laughs> yeah, pretty soon, so I have to go paint myself blue and get my horseshoe <laughs> wig on and get ready for the Super Bowl so this So if you're weekend. watching the Super Bowl and there's a half-naked man <laughs> painted blue, there's a good chance it's Steven. Yeah, just avert, avert your eyes. <laughs> So that'll put an end to episode 22 of The Spiel. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You just just have have to play. play.